The internet? I don't know. I awoke abruptly from a horrible dream and stared wildly about. Then, seeing the high arched ceiling and the narrow stained windows of my friend's room, a flood of uneasy revelation coursed over me, and I knew that all of Andrew's hopes had been realized. I lay supine in a large bed, the post of which reared upward in dizzy perspective, while on vast shelves about the chamber were the familiar books and antiques I was accustomed to seeing in that secluded corner of the crumbling and ancient mansion which had formed our joint home for many years. On a table by the wall stood a huge candelabrum of early workmanship and design, and the usual light window curtains had been replaced by hangings of somber black, which took on a faint ghostly luster in the dying light. That was the opening of The Disinterment by Dwayne Rimmel. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Is that right? Yeah. Story commonly thought to be written by Lovecraft, but as we noted when we covered The Tree on the Hill, which was a collaboration, this co-author, Dwayne Rimmel, disputes Lovecraft's contributions. By the way, I'm Chad Fife. And I'm Chris Lankin. You're listening to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. This was the excerpt from the article by Rimmel that we talked about before. Incidentally, my first story in Weird Tales, The Disinterment, was not, and I repeat, not ghosted by HPL, as certain would-be critics and editors, those were in quotes, would like to believe. This fraud was perpetrated upon me behind my back, so to speak. HPL did indeed see the tale and congratulate me upon it. He made a few suggestions. He said it was ready for professional submission, and Otis Klein did indeed sell it. Any other interpretations by (laughs) self-appointed... HBL researchers, which is us, are false. I was there. I know who wrote the story. Okay? That's what he wrote. Right, what, do you know when he wrote that? When that quote from? What year? Come on. You think I did that much research? Oh, I don't... I'm sorry. Uh, he died 1996, so he was around for a while. And I just wonder if he was talking about Joshi. Joshi says... This is from the H.P. Lovecraft Encyclopedia, and, th- and this is uh-huh. a letter to Rimmel from H.P. Lovecraft, September 28th, 1935. First of all, let me congratulate you on the story. Really, it's splendid. One of your best so far. The suspense and atmosphere of dread are admirable, and the scenes are very vividly managed. Dot, dot, dot. I've gone over the MS very carefully with a view to improving the smoothness of the prose style, and I hope you find the slight verbal changes acceptable. Hmm. And then Joshi goes on to stay in this, and I'm quoting S.T. Joshi here. The critical issue is what to make of this statement. The manuscript or typescript with HPL's punitive corrections does not survive. The fact that HPL refers to slight verbal changes should not lead us to minimize his role in the tale, since this may simply be an instance of his customary modesty. Right. Which he does often say things like that. Rimmel maintains that HPL performed only slight revisions of the story, but if so, then Rimmel never came so close to imitating HPL's style and idiom. The tale bears some resemblance to HPL's early tales of the macabre, notably The Outsider. Oh, definitely. Well, And the thing is, which is awful to say, but another support that Lovecraft had a greater hand in it that I've heard is that Rimmel never wrote anything this good again. <laughs> you know? Could be. And uh, it really seemed like a Lovecraft story to me. And by the way, in the last show, I had made a reference to Barlow being a better writer than Lovecraft essentially i didn't really mean that i mean i i I, I, no no seriously i mean what i was i just wish that they posted a speed limit at the front of these stories because i read 
relatively fast. Right. And I think a lot of our listeners probably can relate to this. I read faster than I can take in the information that Lovecraft writes. Like, his sentences need to be unpacked. The first sentence of this story is probably a good example of that. There's a lot of information just in that sentence that we heard. Mm-hmm. You know, that he awoke abruptly, that it was a horrible dream, that there was a high-arched ceiling, that the windows were stained glass that he was in a place that he shared with his friend. You know, all of this information is given to you in one sentence, mm-hmm. and it's very characteristic of Lovecraft. Yeah. It seems like people sometimes listen to the show and think that we just hate Lovecraft. Or <laughs> no. I love him. Yeah. I love him. I just want, I just want to be clear about that. Well, th- uh, it's we, true. We're just critical, that's all. Yeah, Lovecraft, his work definitely needs to be unpacked when you're reading it, combing over each one of these stories as we have over the last few years. Uh, it, it is work, but yeah. I think it's work worth doing. Exactly. It's sort of like cleaning. You know, when I go into the living room, normally I'll just straighten up and dust. But with Lovecraft, you got to get in all those dirty little crevices. <laughs> <laughs> right. Which is why I hire a Guatemalan woman to read all my Lovecraft for me. <laughs> I haven't actually read any of these stories like no? since Dagon. Wait, were you talking about Maria? <laughs> I am talking about Maria. Wow, so she's she's actually the Lovecraftian scholar. Yes. Thought I knew you, man. Uh, our reader today is Jasmine Mann. That last name sounds familiar. It does sound familiar because she is the wife to the third member of our team here, Mike Mann, who does such a great job designing our graphics and keeping the website running. Ah, oh, yes. And uh, Jasmine's got a great singing voice. I already knew that, but it turns out she's a pretty good reader, too. Boom. Uh, so thanks, Jasmine, for coming on the show. But what we have there in the opening is a fellow who wakes up in a bed in his home, right? Mm-hmm. Which he shares with some other fella named Andrews. Named Andrews. Well, it seems like his name is Andrew, but yeah, it's actually Marshall Andrews. I swear you could pack a dormitory with all of these roommates and Lovecraft stories. <laughs> like, well, it, anyway, our protagonist waking up seems to be a part of some plan on Andrews' part, right? Mm-hmm. In the story, we jump back a bit to get the backstory. Right. What happened to Lee? So a year ago, the protagonist, the unnamed protagonist, we don't have a name in this. Uh, let's just call him Guy, because that's right, in my it. notes. I put some guy or the guy. So Guy <laughs> Guy went to the Philippines to take care of his brother who had leprosy. Mm-hmm. He came back. This was a year ago. He came back from the Philippines. His roommate, Andrew, Andrews, who is a surgeon, said, oh, my God, it looks like you've got the signs of leprosy. <laughs> That's funny, too, because he says that Andrews discovered it before he knew that he had leprosy. Exactly. Which I, I, I assume that there's easy ways to do that. But in my head, I was like, did he listen, old chap? I was shaking your hand the other day, and I noticed that it was well falling off. <laughs> uh, didn't want to say anything at the time, but you may have a touch of the leprosy. You know, like, how do you know somebody has leprosy? I don't. They don't go into that, but they do say later on that it does take seven years before any outward signs of leprosy can take effect. Yeah, but there's some early indication, which is kind of a tip off to Andrews being full of. Uh, well, once they figure that out, they pack the narrator guy off to a bedroom yeah. in their ancient abode. Well, So this is taking place in Hampton. Hampton? Now, there is a place called Hampton Park near Glasgow, which is in Scotland. Well, that would make more sense to me because they live in this ancient castle. Mm-hmm. But I remembered that this author, Dwayne Rimmel, wanted to create his own kind of Arkham in Washington and Idaho. Oh, right. Yes, yes. And th- so this is in Washington, I believe. Yeah. State. Mm-hmm. Which I don't really think is known for its old crumbling mansions. I mean, I've been, I've only been to Seattle. I don't know. Well, 
And I'm sure they have some big, crazy mansions. If you let it go for 20 years, it'd probably start to fall apart pretty quick. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> or, or sometimes they'll, uh, very wealthy people will dissemble mansions in Europe and then bring them over. It could be that. But this is a neighborhood of crumbling mansions. The narrator is from another one, like down the street. Right. Which comes up later. Anyway, Andrews is caring for him. He's been sequestered up in this room. As you said, Andrews is a surgeon. He's got a sinister reputation. Yeah, supposedly uh, he, sometimes he would do all these experiments, had these old books that were um, about strange, unethical experiments where animals yeah. were sewn onto other animals and, and <laughs> right. limbs and things were, you know, like he's a pretty crazy uh, messed up guy. Yeah. And he decides, hey, I'm going to, I've got this idea. I'm going to go over to the West Indies to, to study some of the native medical methods you hang tight here while I go check on this. Charles Bukowski, he's going to watch out for you. What? Charles Bukowski? Factotum. He said he's a... a oh, he right? is a factotum. I got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He says he's the factotum. Sorry, man. That was a... No, no. That's a stretch. It's a, I know. It really was a stretch. That's a novel by Charles Bukowski. That's right. Called factotum. I love Bukowski, by the way. Did our listeners know that? I do. I don't know if they know that, but he's great. Well, so this is Symes, who is Symes. the factotum. And factotum means just, what does factotum mean? Manservant. Manservant? Yeah, it's manservant. It's just another word for manservant. There's too much, uh, to me, when I was reading the story, it's like, we already have the two dudes living together, and then they introduce the third character, and it's another dude, so in my head... Older guy. But I decided that it was a sexy nurse. <laughs> what? Yeah, Symes, in my head, is a sexy nurse. When I, I really did make the decision, when, as soon as the third character showed up, I was like, I'm done. There are too many guys. I want it to be. I kind of knew where this story was going right away. Anyway, I've read too much of this stuff. Mm-hmm. I was like, all right, it's Symes is kind of like that nurse in American Werewolf in London, but oh, wow. like, but probably Colombia. Like a little, you know, she's Latino. Wait, are you, are you talking about Maria again? <laughs> What is going on with you, Pfeiffer? Anyway, while Andrews is gone in the West Indies, and he's gone for a long time, our guy flips through his books and, and gets a kind of an idea of this crazy research that he's going on. And here, I, I feel like this is where Lovecraft would have definitely inserted the Necronomicon yeah. or something specific, whereas Rimmel doesn't. Like, he just says... Do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a this is the point in the story where he could have listed some specific books uh, that tie into the mythos stuff, but he doesn't. He consciously this you know just says they're weird medical books, right? Which to me made it seem less like it might have been Lovecraft who wrote it. Yeah. Now again, it, nobody ever said that it, Lovecraft wrote this, but right. Lovecraft collaborated on it supposedly. Well, about four months later, Andrew shows up again, and he's got this plan he came up with in Haiti. Mm-hmm. Sounds crazy, but Guy is so desperate, he's ready to kill himself. So, you know, he'll go along with any crazy plan. Right. You, you know where he got this from? He got this from a Haitian doctor. Uh-huh. A Haitian doctor. <laughs> right. Who was probably named Murder. You know, <laughs> did you ever see White... I think Bell Lugosi's name in White Zombie, I think his first name is Murder. What? I really do. I, it's been a long time since I've seen that movie. Can you imagine? I'll have to double check that. But I think his name is Murder. When your child is born and you're holding him in, in, in your arms and you're looking into his eyes and you're going, oh, his name is Murder. <laughs> that is, that is, that's what I see when I look into this little <laughs> newborn baby's eyes, Murder. Uh, the plan uh, that he got from this Haitian doctor starts with this drug. On the day after his arrival in the seclusion of the dimly lit study, he outlined the whole grisly scheme. 
He had found in Haiti a drug, the formula for which he would develop later, which induced a state of profound sleep in anyone taking it, a trance so deep that death was closely counterfeited. With all muscular reflexes, even the respiration and heartbeat, completely stilled for the time being. Andrews had, he said, seen it demonstrated on natives many times. Some of them remained somnolent for days at a time, wholly immobile and as much like death as death itself. This suspended animation, he explained further, would even pass the closest examination of any medical man. He himself, according to all known laws, would have to report as dead a man under the influence of such a drug. He stated, too, that the subject's body assumed the precise appearance of a corpse, even a slight rigor mortis developing in prolonged cases. Zombie. Yeah, it's that kind of serpent in the rainbow, exactly. white zombie kind of stuff. Actually, I guess Rimmel could have seen White Zombie at this point. I know that movie kind of bombed, but I think it's an early 30s movie. It came out in 32, 1932, and the story yeah. was written in 35, so yeah, quite possible. possible. But using this drug, they hatched this plan. Andrews is going to give Guy the drug. He'll go dead. They'll bury him, and then Andrews will come get him and bring him <laughs> Home. Yeah, I was at this point trying to figure out why, why is he going through all this stuff? Maybe I missed it. Later on in the story, he talks about the fear of being deported because if he's discovered with, right. discovered with leprosy, he's afraid he's going to be shipped out of the country. But he feels, this is the part that really doesn't make any sense to me, he feels that him being declared legally dead, that nobody can deport him? I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I got the same impression because the fear is that he'll get sent off to, I assume, a leper colony. Right. Sort but if this whole plan works, and we're saying best case scenario, yeah. everybody thinks he's dead, he still has to leave. Yeah, I don't, I don't understand. Yeah, where's he going to go? Because he can't walk around uh, as himself because he's dead. And everyone would go, hey, you're... Yeah, it's kind of ridiculous. In this part, it, it doesn't make... His plan is really stupid. Okay, good. <laughs> I Because th I thought so, too. I was like, maybe I'm missing something. No. Well, the guy, and also, it's a really dangerous plan. Oh, my God, yeah. It's crazy. And he's worried about it, too. He thinks if things go wrong, he could be buried alive. Of course. <laughs> or it could just kill him. And at least he knows he clearly wants life. I mean, he knows he's got these seven years. He wants them, even if he has to stay up in a bedroom. Which, by the way, their, their plan is already working. Nobody knows he has leprosy. Yeah. So the author needed to work harder on that justification. Whomever that author be. Whomever that, exactly. <laughs> anyway, they decide to do it. They do it. The, Andrews gives him the drug. He goes numb. Andrews has to do all kinds of legwork here. He has to talk them out of embalming him. He has to mm -hmm. say the funeral has to be really fast. Yep. They do all the funeral crap. And then Andrews, along with Maria mm -hmm. Symes, they go dig him up <laughs> and they bring him home. He wakes up, which was the beginning of the story. Unfortunately, the drug has paralyzed him. And even though he's alert, he can't move. There's a great line where he says, uh, lying and staring at my numb Hulk was like having it injected with a perpetual anesthetic. <laughs> you just don't hear the word Hulk. <laughs> yeah, he's covered with a blanket. He can't see his body. Andrews tells him that his leprosy is what's making the paralysis last so long. Mm -hmm. Weeks go by, but Andrews doesn't seem that worried about it. In fact, he's just interested in studying Guy, you know, taking his vitals. During that awful siege in bed, Andrews and I became somewhat estranged. He no longer treated me so much like a friend as like an implement in his skilled and greedy fingers. I found him possessed of unexpected traits, little examples of baseness and cruelty, apparent even to the hardened symes, which disturbed me in a most unusual manner. 
Often he would display extraordinary cruelty to live specimens in his laboratory, for he was constantly carrying on various hidden projects in glandular and muscular transplantation on guinea pigs and rabbits. He had also been employing his newly discovered sleeping potion in curious experiments with suspended animation. But of these things he told me very little, though old Symes often let slip chance comments which shed some light on the proceedings. I was not certain how much the old servant knew, but he had surely learned considerable, being a constant companion to both Andrews and myself. See, I have this great ability to run find and replace functions in my head while I read, so every time I read old... I just replaced it with sexy. (laughs) (laughs) Moving on with the story here, he's feeling bad and something is amiss and he doesn't quite understand what. He's he's quits trusting Andrews at this point. Well, he still hasn't gotten a glimpse of his own body, which is strange. When he is able to move his limbs, they feel like alien limbs. They don't do what his mind says. Unaccustomed is the term. He goes, it feels like the unaccustomed limbs. So Guy eventually wants to see his body. And Andrews says, no, 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 you, we can't do that. We can't. And he goes, no, no, come on, help me up and let me look at body. He goes, okay, we can, we can maybe sit you up, but we're going to keep you covered because it's really chilly. <laughs> <laughs> the lamest excuse ever. And he can see out the windows that it's summertime. Yeah. He's like, it's not cold. What is he talking about? But he, at this point, he's not trusting a- Andrews anyway. So he tries to move his hands a a bit, but he just kind of gives up moving around. But then he starts having these nightmares, and they're nightmares of graveyards and and stalking corpses and ghosts and and, uh, vampires with mustaches and all those types of things that are really (laughs) horrific. They seem real. What's that all about? He doesn't know. Well, as he's getting better, too, he, he starts to kind of see things as they really are. Andrews is always staring at him and fingering a scalpel. Mm-hmm. It's like Andrews did this whole thing out of scientific curiosity rather than love mm-hmm. for his friend. Yeah. And Andrews is breaking down a little bit. He's not shaving. Symes yeah. is becoming less and less attentive to his needs. Mm-hmm. So he starts to hatch this plan. He's been progressing little, a little bit at a time, but he's going to pretend like he's not progressing as much as he actually is. Yeah. He starts lying to Andrews about how much in control he is. And then finally, one night, he's he's going to get up. And he pulls himself up, and he gets out of bed, and then he puts. There's a robe there. He puts a robe on, and he puts on some some shoes. But the shoes are a little loose. But they're his shoes. That's weird. And he takes the candelabra, which is in the room, and <laughs> I don't. What what baffles me is that how did he not see his feet, or how did he? All right, you know hold on a second. So at this point, what did you think was going on? I thought that he was a zombie, basically. Like a gross zombie, like a rotted corpse zombie. But it was still him. But it was still him, yeah. Because I thought it was a mind transfer and he was in somebody else's body. I thought that maybe too. Um, Anders did experiments with animals, so I thought maybe they had he grafted on like the lower portion of a dog or, or another oh. person or something. Because he early on he said <laughs> that. So I, I, I meant... Dude, that, if he... Grafted on the lower portion of a dog, and he went and he got and he picked up his slippers, and the little paws went in there, and he goes, "Gosh, my feet are really small." But he was just the oblivious Lovecraftian protagonist. Went well, you know, I've been sick. Whatever, I'm, I'm not feeling great. I haven't been eating as much. He grabs the candelabrum that was referenced earlier, and he lurks yeah. on over to Andrew's room, walks in to see him asleep, sitting in a chair with a book. For a long moment, I gloated over the prospect before me. 
And then, stepping forward suddenly, I brought the heavy weapon down upon his unprotected head. The dull crunch was followed by a spurt of blood, and the fiend crumpled to the floor, his head laid half open. I felt no contrition at taking the man's life in such a manner. In the hideous, half-visible specimens of a surgical wizardry scattered about the room in various stages of completion and preservation, I felt there was enough evidence to blast his soul without my aid. Andrews had gone too far in his practices to continue living, and as one of his monstrous specimens, of that I was now hideously certain it was my duty to exterminate him. Whoa! (laughs) That I wasn't expecting. I wasn't either. It's violent, man. He brutally murders him just right there. I thought he would, you know, escape or confront him or say something like, you've been a jerk and doing bad stuff, but he just freaking beats him to death while he's asleep. I know. I thought he would look in a mirror then run away and faint five times. No. That's what I thought would happen. Maybe that's more evidence it's a Rimmel story. Because nobody faints in this one. He kills the doctor and then he creeps over to Syme's room and I don't I don't really want to recount what he does there because I condemn violence against women of any kind. <laughs> Especially sexy Colombian medical professionals. Uh, she, look, uh, no. It's, you go ahead and say what happened. I can't. Syme, Syme's the old dude. <laughs> he goes into his room. Symes begs for mercy and says a bunch of things that unsettles him, but they, he doesn't specifically say what, and then he kills him. That's well. right. He strangles so him, he, chokes the life out of him. He commits this double homicide, and then he stumbles around in the dark for a while in the house, yeah. and then he finally makes it out into the moonlight, and he heads off toward his own home. And that was when I was reading it. That's when I really realized he he's from a place down the street. There's a lot of ancient castles on this street. <laughs> So he gets over over to this ancient home that he lived in and that his family still lives in, but he went off to go live with Andrews right. instead of staying with his family and being part of his family. He sees uh, his tombstone there because he remembers that they faked his death, and he goes, I got to see what – I got to make sure that it's empty. I don't know why he needs to make sure he's kind of compelled for yeah. some reason. So he starts digging out his grave with his bare hands. And it says, uh, sweat was pouring from me and my nails were but useless bleeding hooks. You know, pretty, pretty ghastly stuff. He dug up his graves, opened it up, and he smells stinky dead body. And he's like, what? A corpse? How? All at once, a bit of the unspeakable truth propelled itself upon my brain. The odor, in spite of its putrescence, seemed somehow familiar. Horribly familiar. Yet I could not credit my senses with such an idea. Reeling and cursing, I fell into the black cavity once more, and by the aid of a hastily lit match, lifted the long lid completely open. Then the light went out, as if extinguished by a malignant hand, and I clawed my way out of that accursed pit, screaming in a frenzy of fear and loathing. When I regained consciousness, I was lying before the door of my own ancient manor, where I must have crawled after that hideous rendezvous in the family cemetery. I realized that dawn was close at hand, and rose feebly, opening the aged portal before me and entering the place which had known no footsteps for over a decade. A fever was ravaging my weakened body, so that I was hardly able to stand, but I made my way slowly through the musty, dimly lit chambers and staggered into my own study, the study I had deserted so many years before. When the sun has risen, I shall go to the ancient well beneath the old willow tree by the cemetery and cast my deformed self into it. No other man shall ever view this blasphemy which has survived life longer than it should have. 
I do not know what people will say when they see my disordered grave, but this will not trouble me if I can find oblivion from that which I beheld amidst the crumbling, moss-crusted stones of the hideous place. I now know why Andrews was so secretive in his actions, so damnably gloating in his attitude toward me after my artificial death. He had meant me for a specimen all the time, a specimen of his greatest feat of surgery, his masterpiece of unclean witchery, an example of perverted artistry for him alone to see. Where Andrews obtained that other with which I lay accursed in his moldering mansion, I shall probably never know, but I am afraid that it was brought from Haiti along with his fiendish medicine. At least these long hairy arms and horrible short legs are alien to me, alien to all natural and sane laws of mankind. The thought that I shall be tortured with that other during the rest of my brief existence is another hell. Now I can but wish for that which once was mine, that which every man blessed of God ought to have at death. That which I saw in that awful moment in the ancient burial ground when I raised the lid on the coffin. My own shrunken, decayed, and headless body. His head was grafted onto a gorilla body? Is it a gorilla body, or is it just a black dude? Yeah, it could be just really racist, <laughs> or it could actually so. be a gorilla's body. I don't know, because... He says it's long, hairy arms. That's the end of the story, by the way. Yeah, that's the end of the story. Yeah, he has long, hairy arms and short little legs, and horrible short legs, which makes me think... Yeah, that it's a gorilla. Racist people don't say black people have short legs, do they? I mean, racist people say lots of crazy things, so it could be. But I think I'm going to go... No, no, I mean, well, some people do have short legs. I mean, you know, it reminds me of The Sign of the Four, where Uh um, there's a little islander that is the cohort of the bad guy and he's right. you know he's a little short statured fella i thought it was a typical lovecraftian mind swap but really his head was just sewn on somebody else's body animal or man i don't know what it was yeah. but that to me was a really crazy reveal i suspected that's what was going on i was a little disappointed that it wasn't a dog body so did you enjoy uh the story uh yeah yeah i did it's not great uh it, it kept moving I wasn't really bored with it, and I was waiting for the reveal, even though I suspected what it was. But, you know, as yeah. it, it didn't make me angry. Me neither. And there's some good horrific bits in here, too, you know? Like, and the fact that that dude just bashed those guys to death it really surprised me. I, didn't, I just didn't expect that to happen. So that was kind of unsettling, and it's good when a story unsettles me, especially horror stories. There was a moment when they reveal that he's always been in a candlelit room, that he's never you know, the whole time he's been convalescing, they didn't let the sun in. Mm-hmm. And that to me was really cool part of the story. It just was so depressing. You yeah. know, this poor guy, he, he can't move. And uh, even during the day, the drapes are closed and the candles are on. What a jerk his friend is, man. Yeah, he's no friend. He's a jerk. Well, you know, he got it, man. He got it right in the noggin. Well, what, what other information do we have about this track? This particular story was written in September, I said, of 1935 and first published in Weird Tales, January 1937. And that's it, really. And we already talked about Rimmel on the last episode, and there's not too much about him. He was just sort of a, a writer and correspondent with H.P. Lovecraft. And he believes this is his story? Uh... He does. I think it probably is mostly his story, but I would say at the least he's aping Lovecraft. I mean, he's, this is really, to me, it just, the whole premise seemed like a Lovecraft story to me. So 
even if it's something that he wrote just on his own, it's a really skilled imitation. And maybe that's all it is. We can, we'll never know. But yeah, it, it it really does feel like Lovecraft's hand is in this, whether it is directly or or not. But I think it was. I think he did incorporate some of Lovecraft's uh, writing into it. What do we know about uh, what we're reading next week? The Diary of Alonzo Typer is next week's story. Uh, that is written with William Lumley, not Brian Lumley. Cool to see the Lumley name in there. I think it's ghost-ridden, actually. So I think Lovecraft actually wrote pretty much this whole thing. Not oh, sure, though. So we might be in for a, a surprise treat. Okay, cool. I'm looking forward to hearing that. Thank you so much to Jasmine Mann for doing our readings. This time, she has a great voice, and, you know, it's a, not a great story, but I think she breathed some unnatural life into it. <laughs> exactly. Thank you so much. And I also want to remind <laughs> folks, uh, if you're anywhere near Manchester on June the 2nd, please make your way over to The Traveling Man, where I'll be signing Lovecraft Anthology Volume 2, and I will be doing a talk at 3 in the afternoon. Which is a great store. It's a great store. I've been there. I like it. It's super fun. Come hear me talk about Lovecraft, adapting Lovecraft to movie, comic books, fan fiction, whatever. <laughs> it's going to be a good talk. It's going to be a real good talk. All right, man. Well, uh, we'll be talking again next week about this stuff. Yes. I'm, uh, I'm Chad Five, And I'm Chris Lackey. And this has been the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. hppodcraft.com. Thank you.